Hello, you're listening to the Ambition Podcast. I'm Ellen Buchan, Insights and Communications Executive at AMBA and BJ. Today I spoke to Stephen Van Bellagam, who is the author of The Offer You Can't Refuse. Stephen is widely regarded as one of Europe's thought leaders in the field of customer experience, having helped organisations including Google, Microsoft and Disney, and is an experienced speaker. I spoke to Stephen all about customer centricity and asked if the customer is always right in a digital age. Here's that conversation. Could you tell me a little bit about yourself and your career, please? Of course. Um, so, so I'm Stephen, Stephen van Bellingham, and my the, the core of my passion is to create and share ideas about the future of customer experience. That's basically what I've been doing in the last 20 years. And, and I think people sometimes ask me, how did, how did that start? Why did you get interested in customer experience? And I was thinking about it and I'm convinced now that it's because of, the, of my childhood. My, my parents had a, a small photography store in Belgium where I live. Where I grew up, and um, looking back, I I realized that they were extremely customer centric. They were always talking about their customers during our lunches and our dinners, and I was I was growing up in that atmosphere. And for me, that was like the most normal thing in the world. And it's only later that I started to discover that you know that that wasn't average what they were doing. And I I think I got that customer experience gen injected in my childhood. And and on top of that, I, I was really fortunate that I have. Um, I have relatives living in the Bay Area in California, close to San Francisco, right in Silicon Valley. And I spent most of my teenage summers there. And I discovered, you know, the optimism and the entrepreneurship of Silicon Valley and the role that technology plays in that. So I got really inspired by that. And bringing those two together, you know, the technology and how you can create better experiences, better services for your customers. That's what, what I'm yeah, what I'm doing today. And I started working on that as a researcher, first in a business school, then in a research agency. Today, uh, most of my time goes to giving keynote presentations about this topic. I write books about it. I started a couple of companies that offer services in the field of customer experience. So this is this is what I do. That's my this is my professional life. And it it basically got injected into me when I was a kid. There's just so much I want to ask about that. <laughs> but first, I have to congratulate you on your recently released book, The Offer You Can't Refuse. Um, for those who haven't read it yet, can you tell me some of the key themes? Yeah, of course. Um, the Offer You Can't Refuse is, is a new book that came out um, a couple of months ago. And it talks about the future of customer experience, where I looked at the expectations that people have today and how those expectations will evolve in the next couple of years. And basically, my conclusion is that in today's world, having a good product, having great customer service is a minimum requirement. And on top of that, because of the big digital jump forward that we had because of COVID, digital convenience is also a new minimum. So the demands have increased tremendously in the past couple of years. And a lot of the things that could help us to differentiate ourselves towards customers in the past decade are now seen as the bare minimum. And that's where we are today. So in the book, I wanted to look at you know, what, what can you add? What kind of value can you add for customers on top of that minimum demand? And there I play with two dimensions. On the one hand, I talk about how organizations can become a partner in life 
which means that you understand the human behind the customer and that you understand that every human has like a movie of, of her or his life in the back of their mind with hopes and dreams and, and fears and ambitions. And the better you understand those, the more value you can bring in the life of customers. So basically, the challenge is not just to have a great customer journey and to make sure that it becomes easy to buy your products. The real challenge today is to go beyond that and bring positive change in the life of your customers and add value in the life journey of customers. So that, that's one possible differentiator that companies can play with, the partner in life philosophy. The second one that is growing in importance in the market is customers who look for organizations that take their responsibility towards society, that use the strengths that they have and leverage those to create value for society. And, and I'm not just talking about sustainability here. I believe that sustainability will become a minimum demand really fast as well. I'm more talking about social sustainability, where you use your strengths to really add value to society, but in a way that you involve your customers in that. It's not just a side project, but you try to make sure that everything you do and where your customers are involved is that you make sure that that customer relationship at the end creates value for society. And if you play with those two dimensions, partner in life, adding value to society on top of the minimum demand of a great product, great service, digital convenience. If you bring those different layers together, that's when you have an offer you can't refuse for customers. So since we're going to be talking about customer experience, I was wondering if you could almost set the scene for us and give us an example of a company which you feel offers this great customer experience or is there not one yet? Oh yeah, there, there, there are many companies that are doing a, a fantastic job in, in this field, but I'm going to give you an example of a company that most people don't know. It's a company called Upgrade Estate. And it's a real estate company. And the real estate industry is seen as a very traditional business, right? Where you build something and then you sell it or you rent it out. And that business has been doing the same over and over again for the past few decades. If you sell a house now, it's exactly the same as if you sold it 30 years ago. But then you have this company, Upgrade Estate. And their focus is to build student homes. So they built these large apartment buildings and they want to have students in there. So they built them, they rent them out, they do the maintenance, they do everything. But these guys want to go further than just building a nice room and renting it out. That's the product and the basic service. Of course, they have digital convenience because they know this is a young audience. So everything is digital. You can buy your furniture on a digital marketplace. You can get into your room with your phone. You don't need keys anymore. So it's fully digitally equipped. But the real differentiator is in partner in life and adding value to society. Let's start with the partner in life philosophy of Upgrade Estate. They don't just want to rent out student rooms. They want to be a partner in a successful start of your career. And they look at what students value. And one of the things that they discover is that a lot of students, you know, are uncertain about the exams or about, you know, if they're capable of, of, of finishing their, their education or there's a conflict in those student homes. I mean, there's always something going on. So they decided to make sure that 24-7 in every building that they own, that there's a mental coach available. They make wow. sure that their students have access to that completely for free to support them with any kind of problem that they that they may have. 
Um, but they also have a upgraded state academy where students can network with business leaders, where they have uh, speaking sessions, where you can learn things that you don't learn on the student benches, but that help you to have a successful start in your career. That's how they look at it. Partner in life. And the, the, they do a lot of things to make those students as successful as possible and make them as feel good as make them feel good um, at the same time. And then you have the, the second part, adding value to society. And here they play a double role. First thing is they, they created their own energy company, Lime Green, it's called, because they wanted to make sure that all the energy in their buildings was 100% green and they didn't trust the other energy suppliers. So they created their own energy company to make sure that they could bring value to that. But they go beyond that. They um, ask their investors and they ask the parents of their students to pay a little bit more every month to fund their their foundation that they have. They created a student foundation because some of their students are paying for the room themselves. Their parents aren't paying for it. They're doing it themselves. And they need student jobs for that. But now with COVID, many of those student jobs were gone. Most of the time, those student jobs are, are in you know in, in bars, at events, restaurants, all those places that had to close down. So they didn't have any money. So as a consequence, they couldn't pay their rent anymore. So as a typical landlord, you could you know, tell them, guys, you need to pay or you have to leave. But they know that if a student drops out of their apartments because of financial issues, that they will not finish their education anymore. And they have a lifelong problem. So they don't want that. So they create their own foundation so that students that have to pay for the room themselves and cannot pay for a couple of months, that the other people in the building are paying for that rent. So they created this whole philosophy to make sure that everybody who has good intentions can be part of their community. And, and then you see, okay, this is not just a building. This is not just cool digital tools. This is really understanding what people want. And this is really thinking about how can you bring value to that, to that individual, to that student, to that human behind the customer. And how can you create a social movement that brings value to society where the customers are actually involved in the process. And I can tell you, they are hugely successful. Everyone loves them. Everyone talks about them. And it is because they bring value in every layer that a customer expects value today. That sounds amazing. It sounds like they've created such an incredible community as well. So when I was thinking about this podcast, I was trying to think about what I knew about customer service and customer experience. And one of the things that popped into my mind was kind of the old age saying, the customer is always right. And I wanted to understand your opinion on that coming from digital age and coming from your ideas of customer experience. Oh, uh, I disagree with that. The, the customer isn't always right. Uh, many customers say the, the really crazy things that are absolutely wrong, or many customers will lie to you. I mean, when, when they buy something and they, they break it, they will say, hey, this was broken when I got it, whereas they know they just dropped it themselves. And so they're not always right. But then the next question is, what do you do in a situation when the customer is not right? Uh, are you going to help them out or are you going to you know, tell them that they're wrong. It's a very difficult one. Um, and there, there are two rules that I like to use there. The first one is in, I have the assumption that 95% of the customers that you deal with are decent people, people that you can talk with, people that you can do business with, normal people like you and me. But the truth is you also have 5% pain in the ass customers. Every company has them. I mean, when you see them walk in your store, you think, oh my God, what's going to be the problem here today? Everyone knows them by name and by heart. Your blood pressure goes up when you hear their name, those kind of people. Now, the problem is that in the back of our mind, 
we tend to give more weight to those negative experiences than to positive experiences. And after a while, because you know, if you have 100 customers a day and 99% are really cool and normal people, but the one person, there's this one guy that really made your day a living nightmare. Well, when you wake up in the middle of the night, you think about that one guy. And after a while, you spend so much time thinking on that. It creates so many negative emotions and frustrations that after a while, you start to say, customers today, I mean, it's terrible. I mean, the, the, you know what, what the other guy asked the other day? And at the same time, you start to think that the crazy one, the pain in the ass customer equals the average customer. And that's a big mistake because that's not the case. And then the danger is that you start to create rules to make sure that the 5% pain in the ass people cannot take advantage of your goodness anymore. And by doing so, you're punishing the 95% of the normal people. That's what a lot of businesses are doing. So the customer is not always right. And there are two kind of customers. And, and if you then have a 5% pain in the ass customer that is annoying you over and over again, I think as a business owner, you have the right to say, look, clearly your expectations don't match our way of working because you're, you're always unhappy with what we do. I can recommend you someone else to, to go to that may be better for you right? because we cannot meet up to your expectations anymore. So it's probably better to, to end the customer relationship here. There's no problem at all to say that. And then imagine you have the other group, the 95%. I mean, they, they can lie because they're afraid that something will cost them money or so, but deep inside, they're good people, you know? I think in those cases, it's always best to help them out, even if they're wrong. You know, if a mistake happens, there are two ways to react. You can you can say, let's figure out whose fault it is first. And then you start this whole investigation. You start to ask, you start to look into things. And then after a while, you solve the problem or you tell them it's your mistake, you'll have to pay. Or you can just fix the problem. My mentality is always to fix the problem first and then talk. Because, you know, if you have a good customer, and they lie to you and they pretend that it's your fault, even though you know it's 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 their mistake. There's a big chance that if you find out and you tell them, look, to be honest, it's it's your mistake, it's not ours, that they're still gonna be angry with you and say, Yeah, but you know what? I've been here a customer for five years and now there's one thing, and now you're blaming me. And then you say, Yeah, you know what, you're right, and then you fix the problem, but there's still negative energy because you had this conflict. That's why I always pledge to fix first then have the conversation because usually you still fix it. Even if you don't agree with it, usually people are like, you know what, I'm going to fix it. So fix first, then talk. That creates more positive energy than the other way around. And be aware of the 5% pain in the ass customers and treat them in a different way than the 95% decent people that all of us have as customers. I like that a lot better than the customer is always right. <laughs> There's some nuance to it that. <laughs> So in your book, you talk about companies needing to take a more active part in the personal life journey of their customers. And you've talked about that already in the podcast. But I was wondering where you think the line between good customer engagement is and breaching your customer's personal trust is. For example, there's been a lot in the news about the use of personal data, for example. Could you expand a little bit about that, please? Sure. This is one of the challenges for the next couple of years. On the one hand, we all know that if you want to create fantastic customer service today, that you need data. We sometimes complain about data, but the truth is if, if Google would delete all our data tomorrow, I mean, we, we would get crazy because we wouldn't be able to find anything anymore. It would be a total absolute disaster. Um, so we need that. But at the other hand, 
we also believe like, you know what, the, these guys are starting to know a lot about us huh? and that doesn't always feel good. And today, the truth is, as customers, we don't really have a choice. Uh, today, we're in this trade-off economy where you choose between privacy or convenience. And usually, most of us, 99.9% .9 of us, we choose convenience over privacy because we love the convenience and we take the disadvantage with us, but it, don't, it doesn't always feel good. That's the situation today. If I look at future scenarios, I think that will change. I think sooner or later, we're going to end up in a world of data ownership where the customer has control of their data again, where you as a customer can decide, all right, I'm going to share my data with company A because they're doing a great job with it. But company B, I mean, you guys, you completely messed up in the last couple of years. It's game over. I just blocked my data from you and I'm going dark now. That, that's something that sooner or later will happen. Uh, a very simple app where you decide, okay, access, no access. And there are not enough companies that are preparing themselves for that right now. There are too many companies that are so obsessed with the GDPR legislation that they are like lurking to the borderline of what is allowed with one goal in mind, to optimize the value for their own company. And if you think like that, basically, if, you, if the value that you get from the data of the customer is higher than the value that the customer gets, well, in a world of data ownership, you get blocked. So I would advise companies not to lurk up against the borders of what is allowed and, and is not allowed, but to completely change the paradigm and start with the customer and ask yourself, what kind of value can we bring to customers? How can we make their life easier? How can we help them to save time? How can we help them to save money? And if you succeed in that, by using their data, they will feel it. And the moment that we arrive in a data ownership world, they're, they're going to say, hey, guys, you, you can keep using it. I cannot live without your service anymore. But it starts with creating value for the customer. That's why we need to use their data. And then there's not much of an issue because then the trade-off disappears. Then the value is maximized for the customer. And at the end of the day, as a consequence, you get value back as an organization. But there are too many that now think differently and start from their perspective. And usually the customer isn't always happy with that. Absolutely. And so, again, going back to the kind of the customer's life journey, how do you think playing a more active role in the customer's life journey impacts socialist views such as climate change and social mobility? Well, it's, it's a combination of partner in life and adding value to society. Uh, the, those two dimensions play, play a big role. But if you do it in a smart way, you can combine both. Like, um, I'm just going to use an example that I, that I saw last week here in Belgium. We, we have this very unique partnership that, that is starting to unroll here. It's a partnership between one of our largest telco companies called Proximus and one of our largest financial services companies called Belfius. So these two created a joint venture to bring services to each other's clients. So now last week, the, um, the telco announced that they, were, they will start with a digital bank. And this is part of their strategy to become a partner in life. They don't just want to be a telco provider. They want to help you in with, with all important aspects of your life, uh, with healthcare, with mobility, and also with financial services. So they're going to launch this bank called Banks. And it's a digital bank like you would expect it to be. Uh, it's very convenient. It's very community-driven. You can pay your friends in a very easy way. So it has all the cool digital features that you would expect. But the one thing that makes them more unique is that they created this concept, they call it slow banking, 
where they will give every customer a personalized dashboard, a CO2 dashboard, where you will see the impact on climate of every purchase that you make. So by the end of the month, you will see what you've done in terms of damage for the climate. And then they will give you recommendations how you could change your buying behavior to reduce that. And there, th this is based on a technology from Sweden, uh, the economy it's called. And these guys have been working with this in other countries. Like there's a, a bank in Italy that is using this concept. And they know that if you manage this in a good way and if you communicate this in a good way, the carbon footprint of the customers of that bank are, are being reduced by 50%. By making it transparent, by making people aware and telling them what they can do about it, they change their behavior. So there you have like this, this wonderful offering where a telco is saying, hey, we're going to offer you broader services. We want to be a total partner in life in, in every important aspect of your life. And at the same time, dear customer, we're going to involve you in doing well for the planet. And we're going to together, we're going to have a positive impact on, on sustainability. And that is powerful. Huh? This is more powerful than just the company saying, oh, this is what we do, customers. No, they involve their customers and it becomes the combination of doing something where the customer is part of the journey that becomes really, really powerful as an, as an instrument that you can use in your customer relationship. I would love to see how my money translates into like CO2 emissions. That's absolutely fascinating. I've never heard of that before. It's cool, huh? Really cool. So kind of looking internally into corporate culture, when looking at customer experience, what parts of corporate culture are the most important to lead to this great customer experience? Yeah, a very good point. Um, because every business leader wants to have a culture where where their teams are customer-centric. And, and you know what the crazy thing is? Most companies believe that they are customer-centric. It's, like it's like in traffic huh, where everyone believes that they are the best driver out there. And it's just the others that are creating, creating problems. It's the same with customer-centricity. We, we all believe that we're the best in class. The customers don't always agree. So, so there are a number of things that you can work on. Uh, the most important thing is making it crystal clear to every employee that the customer comes always first. And that's something else and the customer is always right. The customer comes always first and everything that we do should have a positive impact on customers. That's an important one. And I think that the challenge there is not just to say, hey, we're going to be the most customer-centric company in the world and we want to have a net promoter score of 50. Guys, here we go. That's not enough. You can say that, but the real challenge is to make sure that everyone, every individual in the organization knows exactly how they can contribute to a better customer experience. Everyone, and not just the salespeople, not just the service people, but people in R&D, people in HR, people in finance, involve them in the process and tell them it, it's not because you're behind the scenes that you don't have an impact on customers. In fact, this and this behavior can really have a positive impact on, on the end goal of making our customers happy. And translating the vision of an organization to every individual in the organization and telling them how they can contribute is something that only a handful of companies is doing. But it's necessary to, to, to become really customer-centric. That's the first thing. The second thing is think about how you empower your teams 
that are in the front line to deal with issues and to deal with questions. Uh, the, the goal is to make sure that you have an, an empowerment that goes far enough that people can solve 99% of the problems. Uh, the, the one question you don't want to hear as a customer, if you have a question somewhere is, oh, let me ask my manager or I will call my manager. We, we don't want to talk to a manager. We want the problem to be solved. So you need to make sure that that empowerment is there. And, and what you need to make sure that they will actually believe you that they can do it is, is create some sort of, of a playing field and tell your customer, tell your employees like, guys, every discussion that can be solved with less than 1,000 euros or dollars or pounds, you're free to make that call. Don't ask someone, just do what is right for the customer. Even if you're in doubt, always give them the benefit of the doubt. Don't worry. That's what we expect from you. If it's something that is really exceptional and really expensive to solve, then we're going to talk about it. But in 99% of the cases, you're allowed to solve the problem by yourself. It's your own authority, and we're going to fully support you. That kind of empowerment, that creating that safe environment for your employees that they really believe you that they're allowed to do that, that's the second element that you need in your culture to make it happen. And the third one is about KPIs. Um, companies are so obsessed with KPIs and, and some measure the net promoter score, some take customer satisfaction. And, and you know, it's, it's cool to measure that. I'm a, I'm a fan of that. You should. But after a while, some companies start to you know, manage the KPI rather than to focus on the customer. And they look at how they can make sure that the KPI increases and that becomes the end goal. And it's like the they're starting to be obsessed with that KPI, not looking at processes from a customer point of view anymore. And then you're starting to do things where your, your stats start to increase, but the customer doesn't feel a difference. And then you just fooled yourself. And, and those are for me like a number three dimensions that are crucial to create a culture, right? the crystal clear vision that you translate back to every individual, an empowerment playing field that creates that safe environment and not being obsessed with KPIs in the wrong way. Amazing. So I just have one last question for you. All right. All right. Cool. Um, you were saying that most companies think that they are customer centric, um, but they actually aren't. So what mm -hmm. mistakes that companies are making when it comes to providing a great customer experience? You know, it's, uh, I'm, I'm going to give you my top three favorite questions that companies can ask themselves. As someone who's listening and is like, yeah, but in Steven's perception, would I be customer centric or not? I'm going to give you three questions and just stand in front of the mirror and ask yourself what you would, what you would do. First question is this. How do you act when there's an opposing interest? Because it's easy to please customers when we're all thinking in the same direction. But what if you have an opposing interest? Usually that's financially. Uh, imagine that you're a bank and you have a bunch of customers with a sleeping bank account. They don't do anything with the bank account and they pay you an annual service fee. And you see that. What do you do? Do you... Do you think, okay, let, let's not tell them how we're losing money here. It's easy money. We're just going to continue that. They don't know about it. So let's let's take the money. That's, that's option one. Option two is you go to that customer and say, hey, customer, you have the sleeping bank account. There's no value here. Why don't we just stop it? Because you're paying us and it's, it's not bringing anything to you. That's option two. Option three is you go to the customer and say, hey, dear customer, you have this sleeping bank account. You had it for five years. You paid us 20 euros a, month, a year for that. 
why don't we close it down and we're going to repay you that 100 euros because you paid us, but we didn't bring any value whatsoever. And, and you, I don't need to explain, huh? you, you feel the difference between not customer centric to average customer centric to being extreme customer centric. And that's a question that many organizations should ask themselves. Huh? If they're playing the customer centric game, what do we do in terms of opposing interest? That's not the first question. Second question is the empowerment. Huh? The thing that I just talked about, ask yourself this, do we have this safe environment where people really believe that they are allowed to solve any problem whatsoever with the customer uh, with, with a certain barrier or a certain limitation. But are they really free to solve everything? And when they make a decision where the management doesn't agree with, do they get punished or rewarded? Because a safe environment means that if someone solved the problem in a way that you as a CEO wouldn't, I mean, if, if you, you had a different idea and you think, oh, this could have been handled better. Do you still support them or do you punish them? Those kind of questions are, are the second one. And then the, the third one is about what do you do when a problem occurs? It's also something that we talked about earlier, but what do you do? Do you fix the problem or are you looking for the person who made the mistake? And if you're looking first for the person who made the mistake and you're doing some sort of an investigation there, you're not as customer centric as when you just fix the problem and you talk later. Those kind of questions will help you to understand how customer centric you are. Uh, it's not just about we're measuring NPS or we're doing this or we're doing that. Look to the details when it becomes a little bit harder and when it's not that easy to help a customer out in a good way, when you have these conflicts, think about your behavior then and that will tell you how customer centric you really are. Amazing. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I've really enjoyed speaking to you today. It's, it's a pleasure. I'm very happy that you invited me. Thanks, thanks for having me. Thank you so much to Stephen for being on the podcast today. If you'd like to read his book, it was called Offer You Can't Refuse and is available at any good bookstore. If you'd like more thought leadership, head to www.associationofmbas.com forward slash ambition and make sure to listen out to the next Ambition podcast.